right, good morning. Thank you. Okay, great. Uh, just out of curiosity, by a show of hands, like how many of you are familiar with the book of Galatians uh, or have heard a sermon series on Galatians, etc.? Anything along those lines, like just even vaguely familiar? Cool. Okay, great. Awesome. A little bit over half. If you haven't, that's fine. You're actually, this is actually going to be even easier and better for you. Um, because the way that, that Galatians is often preached is, if, if, I, if you had to summarize it with a single kind of proposition, it would be this, that it's that Galatians is about the good news that salvation comes by the free gift of grace by faith alone, and not through this legalistic kind of approach of earning God's love through moral or religious obedience, and, and that comes in the language of, especially of, of what's called Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, or the law, um, and especially with something we're going to talk about this morning, circumcision, right? And, and that's typically how Galatians is preached, and, and I'll be honest, um, I picked the book of Galatians to go through because I was like, okay, this will be really different from the book of James that we just got done preaching through. It turns out it's actually really similar, and it ended, like, it's different enough that I'm going to have to change all of the titles that I had already figured out for the, book, for the sermon series. Um, and, and it's not that, that that's not what Galatians is about, what I just articulated. It's that that's actually assumed. That's part of, part of what Paul is, is building on, but that's not actually the point of what Galatians is trying to get across, right? You might be thinking, well, if it's that obvious, then why don't we understand Galatians in that way? Well, and it's because we have this, this tendency um, to take Scripture, and this is, Galatians is not the only book that we do this with, but it might be one of the easiest to do this with, um, but we, we tend to abstract and privatize doctrine from it, right? We, try, we, we tend to like take the principles that we see, take them out of context, and in trying to apply them to our individual personal lives, we end up both losing the context and also reducing it to the cultural lens that we're reading it with, which is very individualistic. Uh, we want to see this as, as something that doesn't apply to our public faith as much as it is does our, our private faith. But... As you might have gathered already from what Maria's reading of, of, of the passage, abstracting doctrine really does not explain why Paul is so urgent and insistent from the very beginning, right? He says at the very, like, he says, I am astonished that you are quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are returning to a different gospel. Cool. No, no, like, hey, how's your mother doing? You know, like, no, I hope this finds you well. I mean, who doesn't open an email with, I hope this finds you well now? And as soon as you see it, you can't unsee it, and it's just terrible, because you still do it anyway, right? So it must have been significant enough of a, something going on that, that Paul would, would, would start with this kind of urgency and bluntness. So why? Why is it, why is it so urgent? Well, the title of the sermon is <laughs> Willing Slaves. And that's, that's what is at stake here, as he's trying to confront not just a church, but churches in Galatia, the region that is modern-day Turkey. He's trying to help them to see that what they are considering and where they are going is, is willing slavery. The answer to that question and how, how that, how that happens, the answer to that question is what Galatians is all about. And so this morning I want to do, I, want, I really want to focus on like context and get a big picture understanding of what Galatians is so that we can really build on that foundation as we go through the series. And so 
Let's jump in. Let me talk about the context here, okay? This is not directly in the passage. It's something that you, you need to be a history buff to know, okay? Which is that in the Roman Empire, the, one of the ways that Rome would, would subjugate a people and indoctrinate and, and um, assimilate them into the Roman Empire is by insisting that whatever culture it is would end up taking on the Roman uh, pantheon of gods and worship the emperor as divine. This was, this was non-negotiable. This happened every single time, every single people that the Roman Empire conquered, except exactly one, Israel, the Jewish people. They learned very quickly that they weren't just going to metaphorically die on that hill, they would literally die on that hill, and the Roman Empire would, had the choice of either be okay with them continuing to worship Yahweh and follow Torah to follow the law over and above Caesar's law even, or basically extract no economic good from their region, and you'd have to annihilate an entire people in a culture, in which case there'd be nobody to work the fields. So the Roman Empire is very utilitarian, if nothing else, and they made this one singular exception. Now, I can't tell you how big of a deal this was, and I, I cut, like on my paper, sections amounting to about this much, so like half, about a quarter of a page worth of notes trying to express how big of a deal it is, and I'm going to just try and, and sum it up very succinctly with this. In the Roman Empire, everything was worship. Everything was worship. This is not, like part of what I was saying earlier about this, like we tend to privatize doctrine and privatize our faith. That was not a thing. Everything was worship. The economy, for example, in, in the city of Ephesus was literally the manufacturing of idols. The, the merchant class, the craftsmen, their entire economy was built on crafting and making little statues or big statues that people would then worship as a god. Okay? That was the entire economy It was built on that. If a city was in decline, typically, just, just across the Roman Empire, if a city was in decline or there was some kind of a public crisis, there's a plague going through the, the city, etc., the explanation must have been, and this is what they, what they, how they saw it, that the, the city did not have sufficient fervor or was not worshiping uh, the, the sponsoring god or gods as well as it should have. And this was divine punishment. Like, I can't tell you, this, and that's not just a cultural belief. The Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace, the, the very thriving that the Roman Empire depended on and had cultivated across a, the, the largest geographic area the Western world had known then, by then or since was dependent on it. Government authority was rooted in it. Civic virtues appealed to it. It made the empire run on all cylinders. That's important because to make this exception for contrary worship was functionally a threat even if their letters started with grace and peace to you. Letting Jews follow God's law above and be over Caesar's was a thinly veiled endorsement of pre-rebellion and a perpetual socio-political tinderbox in the making. So any Roman officials and government officials, like they, they would have seen the Jewish community, the diaspora is what it's called, so you know, Jews who lived outside of Israel in, for example, Galatia, that they would have been viewed with significant suspicion, um, 
it would have been, like you would have to be keep them tightly reined because it could have it could go very badly for you. And execution was a was a very regular punishment for magistrates that didn't order their city well. Okay, that's the pressure. Like that's just the context before we even get into Galatians. That's what has been the case for a couple centuries or more by the time Paul and the Galatian audience that he's writing to is born. Okay, that's what's going on. Okay, so let's talk about the problem that Paul is responding to. And the problem is to cut or not to cut. Okay? There are going to be a couple circumcision jokes in here. I apologize in advance. You kind of have to. It's either a laugh or cry thing, right? Okay. Paul does not say circumcision in this passage. In fact, he doesn't mention circumcision until chapter 5. But I want to read verses 2 through 4 because his entire argument leading up to that point is about this. So knowing where we're going is going to be helpful. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Okay, now to cut straight to the point. Sorry, I'm just getting these out of my system so you don't have to deal with them the whole time, okay? What is circumcision? Circumcision is a sign and a seal, okay? It is a sign and seal marking God's people as set apart, and that's what holy means. Anytime you see holy in Scripture, it means set apart. Set apart for him, for God, and from the rest of the world. It denotes and and identifies God's people as as a people in special relationship with him who are committed to organizing and focusing their entire lives around worshiping Yahweh and trusting in him for his provision. Okay, This is like in the Old Testament, it was circumcision. In the New Testament, this is why we baptize people in the church, which we're going to do in a few weeks. It's going to be awesome. Okay? This, this is what marks God's people out. It's how God's people identify one another as members of a community. Okay, but there's a major problem with this, and in this context. Gentiles are coming to faith. People who are not circumcised, who have no familiarity with Jewish culture, Jewish religion, Torah, or can even read Hebrew, Okay. And in coming to faith, they are starting to connect with and associate themselves with these Jewish diaspora communities. And so if circumcision is membership in a community, then of course they should be circumcised, right? Because that's what, that's, what that's what you do if you're a Jew too. Well, Paul is saying wrong. Because what has happened in Jesus' death and resurrection is so significant, it is so different from anything that has come before with cosmic implications that actually that is not the case. Now, we believe in spirit and in truth what was worshipped in flesh, right? Paul's saying that if you believe in Jesus, then that is your marker. That is how you are identified and set apart as God's people. And so circumcision is not just unnecessary and redundant, it's actually missing the point completely. Let me read, um, he actually says this in, in Romans chapter 2, verse 29, which is written after Galatians, so you can see how his argument develops a little bit. He says, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. 
His praise is not from man, but from God. It's almost like he's paraphrasing the first 10 verses of Galatians in one verse in Romans. Okay? That's the problem. He's advocating and saying that, no, you should not circumcise. And so what is the controversy? Like, why is that controversial? How is that spilling out? Well, three, my third point, is the accusation. The way that the people are responding to him, and especially the Judaizers, this is the, this is the accusation and how they're trying to undercut his argument, is that he's people-pleasing. He, comes, he sums this up in verse 10. He says, he's, for na- for I am, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, verse 10 summarizes the, the authority that he just he defends himself with in verses 11 through the rest of the chapter, and then t- chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So he spends two, t- 25 verses or so filling out and, and, and reiterating what he said in one sentence in, in verse 10. He's depending on and appealing to his authority because his, the, the accusation was that you're taking the easy way out, Paul. You're saying they, they don't have to obey. This is more, people, see, when we use the term people-pleasing, we kind of, we, we think of this as like a, a temptation or maybe a, a character flaw at worst. Like this is just a personality trait. I tend toward people-pleasing, right? The, this is like calling Paul a compromiser and a hypocrite. It's accusing him of, of being willing to cut corners on obedience in order to blend in and appease pagan neighbors, to not be different and set apart, to not be holy. You could say that he, what he's advocating for is disobedience in the name of love, and that is, ends up being not love, nor obedience, nor justice, nor not, anything else. Okay. There's a major problem with his teaching, right? And there's a major problem with it. This, this, this really kind of pushes back on maybe how we have heard Galatians before. Uh, N.T. Wright, who uh, he's an Anglican uh, priest, and he's anything he writes, if you see N.T. Wright, just read it. It's gold. It is gold. Okay, he says, and I'm going to be quoting him a lot in this series, he says, the problem then was not simply one of what today we might call legalism. Yes, the Pharisees insisted on strict adherence to Torah over and against other Jews who were prepared to relax regulations, especially when they were with Gentiles. But this was not because they were trying to amass enough good works to ensure that they went to heaven when they died. It was because they knew on good biblical grounds that God had called Israel to be holy, to be his special people, and that their holiness would be directly linked to the great redemption that they had been promised. In other words, like, in ways that we are, is very strange for us. Like, we think, like, well, if whatever you do in the privacy of your own home, if it doesn't harm anybody, blah, 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 like, our individual actions only affect us. No. <laughs> Everyone involved in this argument that Paul is having, both the Galatians, the Judaizers, the, the, the unbelieving uh, Jewish religious establishment in Jerusalem, the apostles, individual actions have communal repercussions, right? One rabbi puts it this, uh, actually after Galatians was written, a rabbi in the century following um, summed up this attitude as, if all Israel, Israel kept Torah for a single day, the Messiah would come. We're in this together in a sense, right? So Paul's gospel then was a threat to not just socio-political, economic, 
circumstances, but to Israel's very salvation. It was spiritual treason they were accusing him of when they called him a people pleaser. Now, does anything that I've been describing right now sound familiar? This is basically the same attitude that the Roman Empire had in thinking that this, a city's decline or, or a crisis is the result of them not being faithful enough. The Pharisees are actually no better than Rome. They're operating off of the same assumption, and there's reason for it in some senses. But what Paul is saying is, no, something has changed. Something has happened. This cannot be true if, if we believe the gospel and if the gospel is true. And so what we see is this intersection. There's this kind of vertical fear of like, is God going to send us back into exile even though we already feel like we're in exile? Being compounded by horizontal pressure from Judaizers, which is who the people are exerting the the pressure on on Jewish Christians, who are terrified of the socioeconomic, political consequences of being flooded, their community being flooded with these brand new, wet behind the ears, you know, um, Christ-liberated Gentiles. It's messy. <laughs> it's really messy. And a circumcision, to kind of boil all this down, circumcision then is, is not just representative of like your moral goodness. Like that's, that's the simplistic understanding. It's representative of, of the seriousness of Jewish conviction, faithfulness. And if that is in doubt, then so is their comfort and their freedom under Roman rule. They're terrified for their lives. They're terrified of the very same persecution that was being visited upon the the new Christian community in Jerusalem that we talked about in the epistle of James. In other words, they have the same exact fear and circumstance, but from a completely opposite direction. So all of this (laughs) leads us to why Paul is writing and why he says in verse 6 that he's astonished. Before we get into verse 6, though, um, we need, to, we need to resist the temptation of our eyes glazing over something in what sounds like just kind of boilerplate language of a greeting in, in the beginning of an epistle. Let me read verse 4 again and talk about this a little bit. He says, "'Cause grace to you and peace, yes, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father.'" Let me Keep this on the screen if we can, because I want want to break this up into these three chunks. When it says, who gave himself for our sins, he's talking about the atonement. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the gospel. And this is how he is defining the gospel, right? He didn't just manage sin. He conquered it. Those are different implications. If he conquered sin, then the law is no longer necessary. We don't live by the law. That doesn't mean we don't pursue moral goodness or ethical living. What he's saying is that the law was actually never intended to to be our salvation. It was intended to point us to the one who is. And that has happened. It fulfilled its purpose. And the purpose of that gospel in Jesus giving himself for our sins, is to deliver us from the present evil age. That language is straight out of the book of Exodus. When, G- when Israel was in slavery under Pharaoh, it said, you know, God had Moses go and, and told Pharaoh, let my people go, so that, do you guys remember why? What was the purpose for letting them go? Was it for their freedom? 
Bingo. It was so that they could worship God. Worshiping God and slavery are in juxtaposition because worshiping God is, is, through, is, is how freedom is found. Okay? And then, according to the will of our God and Father, this is also straight from the Exodus because in Genesis, Genesis ends with God promising, well, not Genesis ends, but Abraham's life ends in Genesis with God promising him that you are not going to see the promised land as we talked about in Genesis 12, but your descendants will. They are going to grow in exile, and then they are, I'm going to bring them back. Israel under slavery, God knew that was going to happen. He wasn't surprised. It was all part of the plan. This is not new. And so all of that, when, when, when Paul's saying that, he's reminding the Galatian churches, this is what we've been talking about the whole time. Then verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He's saying, you're turning back. What are you doing? The gospel happened. Deliverance and rescue happened. To live according to Torah and to get circumcised is actually to deny that the gospel, which is the good news that our rescue happened, happened. It's to deny the gospel. It's to desert God's Messiah, the one, the, the Passover lamb who had gave himself for our sins so that we could be free and you want to return to slavery. Turns out this is actually, we do this a lot as people, as God's people, as human beings. In Exodus 16, while Israel is, has, after Israel has been rescued from slavery, they're in the wilderness um, waiting for the promised land. And it says, And the people of Israel said to Moses and Aaron, as the Judaizers and those listening to them are saying to Paul, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. At least there, you know, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Freedom's hard. Can we go back to slavery? Because, like, in hindsight, yeah, I know they beat us, and, you know, we had to build these pyramids that were functional houses of worship to dead kings. But, hey, you know, we, we had food. That was cool. This is what Paul is saying is happening. That just like Israel in the wilderness, in this in-between space, which is really actually hard, we're, we're saying freedom might be too hard. But note that verse 4 came first. Jesus gave himself for our sins. That is past event with ongoing effect in order to deliver us from the present evil age, which means that has happened too. Paul is saying to the churches in Galatians, you are spiritual heirs of Abraham. You are the new creation. You are God's delivered and rescued people. God never intended Torah to deliver you, but to point you to the firstborn who gave himself up for your freedom. Do not go back. Do not return to slavery. Do not get circumcised. In fact, that's people-pleasing. Because the reason you're being circumcised is so that you can keep the Pax Romana with the Roman Empire and so that you can keep the approval of the, of the religious establishment that, that is trying to get you to, to abandon this gospel with a false one. 
I'm really sorry to tell you this, but this is going to hurt. It's actually going to be hard. And it turns out that if it is, you might even be doing it right. That's not how we view that, is it? What's really interesting about his argument and the way that he's going about this is, is he's actually, however, a, in some sense, agreeing with the Judaizers on one point, that this is actually a salvation-level issue. This isn't just a, a mistake. This is a big deal. Because to live so willingly as slaves is to demonstrate and to bear the fruit that sooner or later, either now or at some point, you were never rescued or free to begin with, that maybe you didn't understand the gospel in the first place. Now, let me give a disclaimer here. Don't hear what I'm not saying and don't hear what Paul's not saying. Paul is not astonished because they are continuing to struggle against sin or that they do still sin. That's not, that's not what he's talking about, right? Because uh, a, a friend of mine is a pastor. His name's David Cassidy. I love how he puts this. He says, it took one great night to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of them. Okay? Paul's not unaware <laughs> of that. That's not what he's talking about. He's astonished by a willing, knowing, calculated justification, rationalization for safe slavery over and above vulnerable freedom. He's saying that living as if Jesus never came, died, and rose again, that's way more serious and a, a deeper spiritual problem than just struggling. Okay? That is what Galatians is about. Okay? That's the road we're going to be walking down. Uh, in, a, in a minute, I'm gonna, we're going to jump into the Q&A, but I want to camp out somewhere and just, can we be like, can we just be really real as a church? And ask the question, how do, how do we live as slaves? Right? I'm not talking, like, again, my disclaimer still counts here. I'm not talking about, like, hey, where have you just not been able to defeat a given sin or sin in general? Because, by the way, just to let you know, that won't happen before Jesus returns or you die. Okay? That fight is ongoing. Okay? What I'm asking is how do we, what makes us want to look back over our shoulders and be like, you know those meat pots? I might have rather died with a full belly than live with an empty one. What makes us look over our shoulders? Where do we know in our head the right answer, but look fondly at slavery in our heart and how that is reflected in the way that we live with our hands? How do we want to experience freedom, but we really don't want to put slavery to death? Okay. Let's be specific. Maybe you have articulated and said that you are disconnected and lonely, but you're unwilling to prioritize deep community over fun activity. By the way, fun activity is a lot more fun. Deep community is hard. It's really messy. It requires vulnerability. It means like, I actually messed up. I, I made a mistake. And that's tough. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, or you have said or thought to yourself on more than one occasion, you've looked over your shoulder and because God feels so distant. But you don't seek him 
where he is especially present and promises to be especially present among and with and through his people at his table at the Lord's Supper every week. Maybe you're burnt out, but you're not appeasing the Roman authorities. You're appeasing your boss more than you are pleasing the one who made you for rest. Maybe you're unhappy. Maybe you're anxious. Maybe maybe you've rationalized as good and holy what God clearly says is sin. And you justify it with, well, this is self-care. Or it's not hurting anybody else. Right? Again, I want to just re-emphasize, right? I'm not saying you're not saved. Sin deceives, okay? Sin is very deceptive. It has an anthropomorphic kind of feel in Scripture. The way it discusses sin is not just an activity or a behavior. It's actually like a presence, okay? If you're seeking salvation through sin, though, if you are disobeying in the name of love, or you are (laughs) entertaining slavery for the sake of safety and comfort, because it avoids the pain of having to go down that road into the mess, then maybe you are. Right? Maybe you're hurt. Maybe you're angry. And you don't want to forgive. I get it. Like, by the way, these are all things I've felt. In the... In the New Testament, and especially at Pentecost, which becomes the model for the rest of the book of Acts, anytime someone comes to faith or hears the gospel and says, what do we do? Peter says, repent and believe. It's fascinating that he didn't say believe and repent. Sometimes our believing is really hard, and repenting actually makes that easier is our turning from, because that's what the word repent means. It means turning from something and towards something else. And when we turn from disobedience, when we turn from slavery, when we turn from Egypt, when we, return, when we turn from Emmaus, back toward the city of peace, where the prince of peace is found, toward the one who gave himself for our sins, when we turn toward him, we can then see him a lot more easily, can't we? It's easier to believe in someone when you can see him. My point is this, right? And, and, and again, I just want to be really real. Like as a pastor, it is a privilege to be involved in your lives. And I think Jesus is actually doing something in this church. And it's not going to sound like, like this, this is a good thing, but I want, you, I want you to know that I'm aware that this doesn't sound like a good thing. I'm saying that, I say that I think Jesus is doing something in this church because more and more I'm having conversations with you guys, one-on-one or in small groups of people, where you are articulating some form or another of, I just, I have this problem, this is really hard, I feel like I'm the only one who struggles with this. Y'all, I literally am looking at the faces in this room, I've literally had the conversation with half of you. Everybody's struggling with this. I'm tired, and you're tired, and you're not the only one. Yeah, I know everybody looks like they got their crap together. We don't. 
Not any more than you do. But if I had a dollar every time someone, we, I've had this conversation with one of you, and you've said this, and every time I've said, hey, you know what, share that with somebody, share this with your community group. I've been astonished how many of you choose slavery. I'm astonished how many times I choose slavery too. This is why this is, as Paul says to, to, to Timothy, all of, God, of Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us, for all people. This is why this is for us. We want slavery. We, we, we kind of engage and indulge in perpetual optimization. Even if you've never heard that phrase, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's this idea that if we just kind of get the quick fix or the life hack in place, if we just schedule things well, then I can have my cake and eat it too. You can't. You cannot be both slave and free. You have to pick. And you have to walk that road. And I'm telling you, it's an intimidating road. It's a messy road. But it's the one where Jesus is, so that's pretty great. We think that the problem is just a circumstantial issue or it's a technical issue. The problem is our hearts. The problem is not that we don't know what the right answer is. The problem is not that we don't know that if we actually make the church the thing that we plan around, then things will actually start to make a little more sense, even if they're as hard as they were before, they're more meaningful and satisfying. Right? We know the right answer. We know that the right answer is to say the hard thing in community group when, some, when your community group leader is asking, like, how's everybody doing? You know that the right answer is not to be like, I'm okay. We know that the right answer is, if you're wondering if you should ask for help, the answer is always Yes. We know it, but we don't want it. It's hard. The difficulty with resurrection is it requires death, and we have to die to slavery. It takes our whole lives. It takes 40 years to get Egypt out of us, okay? The last thing I'll say, and then we'll jump into the Q&A here, is... um, I just want to reiterate and again validate this. I, I can imagine that many of you are sitting here thinking, I know, but you don't really realize how exhausted I am. And I'm, part of me wants to be like, oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> like, I'm so with you, actually. And, but also, I, I may not, okay? And that's but, because that's beside the point. The point is, your exhaustion is no more an inhibitance to worshiping God and experiencing freedom in Christ than Pharaoh was. Acknowledge that reality. It's real. It's true. And do not let it be bigger than the gospel because this gospel has happened in time and space with cosmic implications for everything and in all of life. Okay? Christ died. He is risen and will come again. It happened. And whatever it is that is causing you to look over your shoulder, it is not as good, it is not as satisfying, it is not as powerful. Okay. Four questions this morning so far. So circumcision prompts questions. Good to know. (laughs) Why did Paul go along with the circumcision of Timothy in Acts chapter 16? Great question. It all comes down to motive. 
Timothy was, in, was considering getting circumcised because he was not Jewish-born himself. His grandmother was Jewish, um, but he was not circumcised as, as an infant. So he was actually considering doing that as an adult. You want to talk about doing the hard thing over the easy wrong. Um, right? He was considering that as a means of reaching the people that he was felt called to reach with the gospel. That was an act of not avoiding discomfort and persecution, but embracing and running it at full tilt. Okay? The motive the Judaizers are pressuring these new Gentile Christians with is as a way of keeping the peace with the Roman authorities and being like, yeah, yeah, you can't, hey, we got this, don't worry, uh, Caesar, we're, we're, we're going to get them in line. Hey, guys, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> Circumcise yourself with the program. That's a different thing. Okay? Very good question. You mentioned uh, baptism is the new circumcision. What is the precedent for New Testament baptism in the Torah or Tanakh? Where did the sacrament of baptism originate in Torah? Okay, so I'm Presbyterian. <laughs> and what I mean by that is um, I could talk about that a long time. But here's, here's, here's the... Um, let me see. Trying to find a specific passage here in Colossians. Okay, my phone's not operating. In Colossians, Paul says, um, uh, he says that that Israel, when going through the Red Sea, all like every man, woman, and child, he says uh, that when they were escaping, when God delivered them from. Uh, the Pharaoh and the Egyptian cavalry um, is that all of uh, Israel bat- was baptized in that. All Israel was baptized in the same way that we are baptized in the blood. And so that is how we understand uh, Torah. And baptism is a new covenant, um, it's the new covenant sign. But that's how it's linked and why we see that as the new, the new covenant's circumcision is baptism, right? I'm going to talk a little bit more about that when we get into communion because um, baptism is covenant making, okay? Think of it this way. Uh, and communion is covenant keeping. In the same way that like every, every, in the same way that you, when you said your vows uh, on your, your wedding day, um, that was making covenant. Well, we, that's what baptism is. And now we are renewing our vows every time we approach the table. But really it's, it's about being reassured that Jesus has never had any need to reassure his, renew his vows to us because that was once and for all. Very good question. Again, if you want more information on that, just text again and I'll, I'll send you some articles. I have a few. Okay. How much of the law was specific to that time or place in history? Since its purpose wasn't salvation but to point them to Christ, if Christ hadn't come yet and we received the law today, would it look different? More relevant to our time but still pointing to Christ? I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, Would it look different? Okay, I want to answer this in two ways. Let me me give the, the, I think the most more important question, which is, as a counterfactual, I don't want to say this isn't a good question, but it's, it's almost kind of nonsensical. 
in, in the sense that, like, well, God acted in history, and we don't know why he acted in history, and he chose to do it in that way. So kind of going down that road is kind of an interesting and valid kind of imagination aspect, but I don't know that it tells us anything that we can know, if that makes sense, Um, because we don't know God's mind in that sense. That said, there was much of the law that was specific to time and place because God contextualizes himself. He uses human existing culture and human language to describe who he is to his people and to the world, right? The covenant, by the way, like the the word covenant was a, a promise or a a ancient Near Eastern um, way of doing contracts. Like it's a, don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but like suzerain treaty was the category of contract it applied. It was like a, the kind of uh, contract between nations. So God made a contract with Abraham that he would be faithful to his descendants in Genesis 12, and then again in Genesis 17, he executed that covenant. That covenant existed already. God didn't come down, like God didn't be like, hey, I'm, I'm going to introduce to you a new word, Abraham. It's called covenant, right? He, no, he used something that was existing in order to explain who he is and what his faithfulness was like, but different. That's the pattern in Scripture. God saying, I'm like this thing that you're familiar with, but I'm not. I'm like marriage, but I'm not. I'm like covenant, but I'm not. I'm like cleansing, but I'm not. I'm like, a, you know, that's how God contextualizes himself. Great question there. Last question. Um, How would you encourage vulnerability and community amongst each other in the church, especially where there may be previous church hurts in the past? Okay. Thank you for asking this question. Um, I'm going to answer it as if you asked it two different ways. I'm not going to give two different answers. Well, they are, but I, w- I want to I use this question in a way that is, I think will help us understand what Paul is trying to do in Galatians. Okay, let me repeat the question. How would you encourage vulnerability and community amongst each other in the church, especially when there may be previous church hurts in the past? Okay. Let me say two things. The first is this. Church hurt is real, Okay. I can't tell you how much I, every Sunday morning that I'm preaching, and I get up, I got to face some fear and trembling myself because, one, I've experienced church hurt before, and, I, and therefore because of, like, not just church hurt, that's, that's a very benign way of saying it. I was spiritually abused by my first um, boss as a pastor, okay? Um, so I've been there, and I also know how pernicious and subtle and terrible it is, Okay? When you are ascribing ultimate things to anything, that risk is there, okay? And so that's valid. And so I would say, man, ask somebody to help you with that. You, don't, you can do that without asking, without going straight into vulnerable. You can say to someone you think might feel more safe than, than not and just be like, I'm really struggling with that question that we heard on Sunday morning that somebody else asked, and I'm not going to tell you that it was actually me asking it. Um, it's totally fine. Maybe it wasn't you asking it. It's fine anyway. And be like, I really want to be more vulnerable, but this is hard. Can you, can you help me walk through it? And if they are trustworthy, and I look, there's nobody in this church that I can even think of that would not honor and dignify that beautifully, Okay. And if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't say it, okay? Secondly, you can't let the previous church hurt stop you, okay? Because 
It's valid. It's hard. And Jesus died for that too. And he has said, let me put it this way. The same bride of Christ that hurt you is the one that Jesus died for. He is not unaware of our sin. He is not unaware of the church's sin. He longs to help and to, to change that. And he is exposing, historically right now in the American church, that, it, that this has, to a varying degrees, both been the case longer than we thought and is maybe worse than we thought for a variety of reasons that I can go into later if you want. Um, if that, if he changed his plan because of that, let me just reread verse 4 and then we'll go to communion. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. The present evil age is still here. According to the will of God, of our God and Father. He's not surprised. Start there. If you want to, I know that as a pastor, like, I could be like the last person you want to do that with. Um, but the offer is there if that is something that you wrestle with. Okay. Um, I said a minute ago that baptism is covenant-making and communion is covenant-keeping. It's covenant-renewing. What that means is, and when we are in those moments tempted to look over our shoulder, wondering if the safe slavery of Egypt or Emmaus, as we talked about on Easter, is better and more satisfying and maybe we should just do that because it'd be easier and we're tired. In the midst of that, the very thing you need is Jesus' reassurance that he's got you. And that's what it means to keep covenant with him. Because on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread that he was with his 12 disciples, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says, this bread is my body it is broken for you. Though you are in spiritual slavery and you don't know it, this is your way out. This is freedom. Likewise, he took the wine. He said, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. It is given as the Passover lamb. It was on Passover that the last supper happened. He is identifying himself with the Passover lamb that is not just a lamb, but the firstborn son of God who's, who, who atones for the sins of Israel and delivers them from slavery. He says, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim my death until I return. You proclaim that something has happened in history. You proclaim that there are cosmic implications of that event with ongoing results. You proclaim that you are not enslaved by sin or death or any other merely political pawn in this world, that you are free. You proclaim it because you need to be reminded of it. And I will never tire of reminding you because I love you. You don't have to feel that truth for it to be true. It is true. And if you want to feel that truth, this table is for you. As, as Danny's going to lead us in worship, as soon as come, come down to either of these two stations at any point, 
as soon as there are eight or ten of you, we'll, we'll take this as a family together, as a messy family. I have served people the wrong juice or grape, uh, grape, grape juice or wine before, um, forgot to serve somebody. I'm really glad Jesus' grace does not depend on me. It's a, it's a, we're a mess. Messes are welcome, okay? Let's pray. Jesus, there's so many, so many ways I look over my shoulder. There's so many ways that I entertain being a willing slave, and Lord, you don't, you don't tire. Lord, help us to respond to the covenant that you have made and are faithful to toward us, and Lord, help us to receive that Help us to know that that's not on our shoulders, that you have accomplished it, that it is finished. And Lord, because of that, we can celebrate. We can be free. Lord, nourish us for that difficulty.